0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never
1: Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about widowhood by the request of a listener who herself is a widow. She's a younger widow and uh, if memory serves, she is actually a war widow. And we decided to look into this topic because... Even though it's something I don't feel like we talk about very often at all, it exists. There are, there are many widows and widowers. This is a, an issue that's never going to go away.
1: Right. And it, reading, reading about widowhood, the stats and hearing, or reading first person accounts from widows and widowers about how society kind of reacts to them reminded me a little bit of the way that, uh, parents talk about miscarriage in that, nobody really knows what to say to someone who has lost a spouse. And that can leave a lot of people feeling really isolated, resentful, misunderstood. You know, a lot of times uh, people uh, like things that Kristen and I were reading, um, widows and widowers were saying, oh, well, I guess I'm just supposed to be over it because nobody wants to hear it anymore. And so we we started digging into this topic and found that a lot of that sort of setting apart of people who uh, have lost a spouse Goes way, way back. In fact, the, the word widow comes from the Latin word that means to set apart.
0: Yeah. And, and even today, the expectations for how a widow in particular should act is largely dictated to by social customs where you're living. It varies widely around the world. Um, so just for some numbers in the United States, as of September 2013, of unmarried Americans 18 and older were widowed, and this includes both men and women.
1: Right, and if you look at the age breakdown, because we tend to think of widows as older women, and that's certainly not solely the case, a third of women who have become widowed are younger than 60, and half of all women who will become widowed become so by the age of 65. And that's according to the Women's Institute for a Secure Retirement. And you might think why is a a women's retirement site talking about widowhood? And it's because, as we'll talk about in a second, widows face a lot of financial problems for for various reasons. Um, But in 2009 alone, over 55,000 people, 34 and younger, in the U.S. were widowed. Yeah, and that's exactly like
0: the Stuff I Never Told You listener who requested this episode so looking outside of the United States for more of a global perspective, uh, there was a 2000 U.N. report finding that widows comprise around the world uh, anywhere from 7 to 16 percent of all adult women. There was also a 2010 study out of the Lumba Foundation, which estimated the number of widows around the world to be 245 million. So. Hmm. This is, you know, a a massive number to state the obvious.
1: Right. And India, interestingly, has the largest number of widows recorded in the world. That amounts to about 33 million women or 10 percent of the female population in in India compared to only 3 percent of men. But only 10 percent of those widows in India remarry, which, again, stay tuned. We're going to talk a lot about remarriage. And we also, too, have to talk about widowhood in this current era of
0: warfare. If you look at areas like Iraq and Afghanistan, widowhood is a massive social problem because uh, a lot of these women are are sent into poverty after they lose their husbands as casualties of war. So, for instance, uh, The New York Times reported that in Iraq, one in 11 women between the ages of 15 and 80 are widowed. And the United Nations estimated that in 2006, at the height of sectarian violence in Iraq, an estimated 90 to 100 women became widows every day during that violence. And then if you look in Afghanistan, the United Nations estimates that there are up to 2 million widows living there. And there is an article on this uh, published by PRI talking about how the widow's life often ends up becoming... Focus on begging prostitution and trafficking and, and trying to find labor somewhere, but often dealing with issues of exploitation. And then, you know, if, if you look at the Syrian conflict happening, too, this is also a massive problem. I mean, estimates are that there have been now up to 150,000 casualties from that conflict in Syria, and it's left a lot of women widowed and a lot of kids without Fathers, and this is a huge problem. And you have there's actually uh, something called uh, the the Street of Widows in a refugee camp in Jordan, just because of how many you know women and children have had to flee there after their husbands have been killed.
1: Right, and that leaves whatever part of the world you come from. A lot of times, when you're widowed, that leaves the woman in a really pre- precarious financial situation because a lot of the times the man is the sole breadwinner for the family, providing all of the money. And supplies for both the wife and the kids. Um And in general, if we're looking specifically, though, back uh, in the West and in America in particular, as women in general age, they become more vulnerable to poverty. Part of that is that we're outliving our husbands. Part of that is that maybe we're not making strong enough financial decisions when we're younger. Um And that group Wiser points out that nearly a third of single women over age 75 are living in poverty And it's worse for older widows. If women become widowed after age 60, they're usually in a worse uh, financial situation unless they happen to have substantial savings, pensions, or life insurance. But those are all choices that they would have made long before their spouse died.
0: Yeah, and globally... These kinds of burdens are worse for women in developing countries. This is an issue that the United Nations and uh, nonprofit organizations and NGOs have really looked into. Uh, because, again, going back to that 2010 study out of the Lumba Foundation, of those 245 million women around the world that they estimate are widows, 115 million of them are destitute. And the conditions are worse, they say, in uh, areas like the Middle East where we're having so many women who are widowed due to warfare or in sub-Saharan Africa where widows are more traditionally abandoned by their husband's family or the issue of of child widows. And we've talked about child brides before on the podcast. And uh, in Bangladesh, for instance, uh, child widows between the ages 7 and 17 aren't uncommon. But when they become widows, they're often kicked out of school. Mm-hmm. They're isolated. It's these same kinds of issues happening Over and over again.
1: Right, because we pointed out earlier that only 10% of widows in India remarry, for instance. And a lot of that does have to do with the view of widows, that they are somehow tainted. They're somehow like a poisonous plague on society, that, and they have to be cast out. Um, Thousands of widows in India, many of whom are uneducated and unskilled, end up being disowned by their relatives, even whether it's their own or their husband's. And they get thrown out of their own homes because of land and inheritance disputes. And not only that, but they tend to face physical and sexual abuse by relatives or end up migrating to cities to basically live on the streets and beg for money.
0: Yeah, and we should note that uh, there used to be a Hindu tradition of widows throwing themselves on their dead husbands' funeral pyres, and, and that was outlawed in the 19th century um, but in the same way, it's like they're almost symbolically thrown on these pyres because, uh, for instance, there's this place called Vrindavan. It's a popular Hindu pilgrimage center. And it's also become known as the city of widows because it's become this place where around 20,000 widows at a time are, are flocking to this place because there's so many tourists and, and, you know, religious pilgrims who are going there that they can sustain themselves on, like, food offerings mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, like, uh, financial offerings that they might be able to beg for. Um, but it's – there. there's no social
1: structure in place to take care of these women. Right. Exactly. Um, and that's – I mean, that's something that we've seen historically as far as widows um, oftentimes having to kind of band together to even be able to survive but then you have exa- other examples international examples of for instance widows in mali having basically passing down their poverty to their children because once you're a widow and you're abandoned by your peers or your family it's hard to break out of that cycle of poverty. And if you look at West Africa, the Igbo culture, those widows there uh, suffer a disproportionate amount of ritual cleansing compared to widowers. Um, and basically anyone who fails to fulfill the requirements of the rituals risks social exclusion. And it's this whole list of things that they face. They have to wear rags or they have to drink dirty water, things like that. But the most common uh, ritual cleansing uh, thing is scraping the widow's hair. Uh, usually the, the deceased husband's female relatives will scrape off the widow's body hair.
0: And we should note that, that some of these traditions are in place because of beliefs about uh, the ritual cleansing being part of sort of excommunicating this woman from her husband's spirit so that he won't come back and haunt her. But obviously there's a lot of brutality mm-hmm. that goes into that. And, um, in, in some countries such as Ghana and Kenya, certain cultures there will also include cleansing sex, wherein the widow will be forced to have sex with either a brother-in-law or even the first like male stranger that she encounters as a part of these cleansing traditions. And so there have been some laws that have been enacted in these areas to put a stop to it. And obviously there are, you know, nonprofits that are working to sort of re-educate people on these kinds of mourning practices, but it's definitely something that is still
1: happening. Right. And what I found kind of both interesting and tragic about all this, which we kind of mentioned earlier, is just the fact that a lot of the way that widows are treated today has so much to do with the way that we have historically treated them. And there was this great book. Uh, it was basically a compilation of chapters on widowhood by various authors. And it was edited by Jan Bremer and Lawrence Vandenbosch. It's called Between Poverty and the Pyre, Moments in the History of Widowhood. And it had this incredible rundown of basically the history of how widows are viewed and treated. Um, they've always been considered a marginal group. That is nothing new. Um, people have never quite known how to treat widows. Like I said earlier, the the Latin term for widow comes from the word meaning to place a part. But the word for widower really didn't come around until much later. There is no masculine term in Latin or Greek to match the term. And in Anglo-Saxon languages, a masculine form didn't appear until the late 14th century.
0: Yeah. And so Bremer and Vandenbosch. Theorize that the reason why you have widowerhood having such a a shorter linguistic history is that the the very concept of widowhood affects male identity much less than widowhood has on female identity. And that's also a a big reason why we're focusing more on widows as opposed to widowers in this episode, because a lot of times widowhood doesn't I mean, not to to say that, that men historically and today don't grieve and feel a massive loss but socially speaking it's not as much of a blow right. for
1: them. Right, And Brimmer and Vandenbosch point out that because widows are sort of considered this marginal group, that's probably why they haven't received very much attention Um and unlike widowers, their lives have been controlled by so many rules, both social and legal, really.
0: Yeah, and, and another thing they point out too is how A lot of times when you read about widows historically or kind of think of them as a group, they're either framed as the poor widow Mm -hmm. or the super wealthy, privileged widow who doesn't have to deal with all of this other awful stuff that the poor widows have to deal with. But they say, in reality, you find widows among all social strata. But the fact that we really only hear about them kind of on the margins is yet more evidence of how they're often
1: overlooked, even by scholars and how widows are defined really uh, depends on what country you're in and then what country you're in. That depends on what culture in that country you're talking about. In ancient Assyria, for instance, the term was reserved for previously married women who had no male protection or means of financial support. Basically, you were only a widow if your husband and your father-in-law were dead and you had no sons. So that was like a pretty, pretty high bar to, to uh, constitute being a widow. Then, you know, Kristen mentioned the the separation between the poor classes and the upper classes as far as widowhood is concerned. And Roman upper class widows were able to live quite comfortably. But that whole ideal in Roman culture of the woman who'd been married only once really could only be an upper class phenomenon. Because that meant that you had enough money or your family had enough money to let you maintain that ideal of like the chaste Never remarried widow.
0: Right. Because if you're looking into the history of widowhood, it, you're looking at the role of these women who don't have, you know, male financial support, which would have been crucial in these times when women were really relegated to just looking over domestic affairs. Their roles were to be housewives and mothers. Mm-hmm. And so if they are not either and yet they are older, then what are they going to do? So one answer to that question mark of, well, what what do we do with widows? Uh, They can't be, they aren't wives anymore. Their kids are grown up. What do we do? That's when you see a lot of tie-ins with religions where widows are almost kind of analogous to how you have devout virgins. In some uh, religions, you have the rise of the the, the chaste widow Mm -hmm. who's sort of upheld in society as... A woman set apart.
1: Right. But people have these stereotypes, always have, probably always will, about where women who aren't confined to safe, normal marriage, where those women fit. And in ancient Israel, for instance, uh, you know, as far as speaking about ideals, you know, the the ideal Roman widow never remarried. Well, the ideal uh, widow in ancient Israel was one who was solitary and chaste. You know, she probably stayed at home by herself all day just praying, but more popular imagery associated her with loose morals. So what does that say? That we, we, we want you as the widow to stay home and just meditate on your husband's memory, but in reality we probably think you're sleeping around and we, we don't like you for it.
0: Well, it's that fear of, uh, that, that Bremer and Vandenbosch talk about in the book. It's this cultural fear of <laughs> the widow because we know that since she was married, there's a very good chance that she consummated that marriage and, and has had knowledge of sexual relations before. And so they talk about how this sort of casts the widow as this woman in between because she's not a virgin. She can't be. She'll never be entirely chaste because of that. And one example that they give of this is in Islam, how Muhammad's first wife uh, was a widow, but his daughter is upheld as the, you know, exemplar, you know, female in the religion because his wife would have already, you know, been, mm-hmm. she, she had already done it. Done it. To put it not very eloquently.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, um. I mean, speaking of of class divides and being impure and whatnot, I mean, even among the upper castes in India, uh, Hindu widows did not get reincorporated into society because they were considered impure. So you're sort of just screwed on so many levels in all of these different cultures. And again, speaking of class, if we look toward uh, Dutch culture in the 18th and 19th centuries, for instance, widows from the nobility had a much different experience than those of the lower classes who were considered to be among unfortunate persons, a group that also included orphans and the chronically ill. They ended up receiving a lot of benefits, social benefits, financial help, that kind of thing. But it was only because they widows were somehow classed with, like, really sick, unfortunate people who couldn't care for themselves and were a burden to society.
0: Well, because in a lot of ways it did put you in that position of not being able to care so well for yourself. Yeah. Because unlike a widower who probably had a trade and would continue working in that trade, regardless of whether or not his wife was alive, widows would have to find some other means of financial support. And Bremer and Vandenbosch do note that there were some guilds that had special allowances for widows uh, that you see widows entering into more traditionally masculine like labor fields. Uh, In certain areas, but by and large, yeah, a lot of times, unless unless you're a wealthy widow, a merry widow, Mm -hmm. as they're sometimes stereotyped, you uh, it's a
1: it's a tough road to hoe. Right. And a lot of these times, you know, you didn't even have a chance to get out from under being viewed as an unfortunate widow because there were things like mourning dress, which completely separated women from the rest of society. Um, Early Christian mourning dress was was such that it basically defeminized widows and Hindu women in some Brahmin castes, which are the upper upper class castes, had to shave their heads. So they were, again, kind of separated. But what's interesting to see is that if
0: you look outside of traditionally monogamous cultures into, say, some Polynesian cultures, uh, widows are afforded. Uh, a, a lot more freedom, for instance, in, in some of these Polynesian cultures, widows are really seen as no different than other women. But it's notable that in these cultures, uh, it's not expected that men and women will only have sex with like one monogamous partner for the rest of their lives. Um, and so widows, divorced women and even younger, unmarried women are all, you know, having Sex. Right. And it's not looked down upon.
1: Yeah, I mean, if sex is seen as a normal, healthy thing that uh, consenting adults engage in, which, my, my, imagine that. Huh. Uh, so
0: progressive, Caroline.
1: But if, if sex is viewed as a normal activity for everyone, including women, imagine that as well. Um, and monogamy is really not expected of anyone, then that's one less thing that you have to look down on someone for, you right. know? And so they have a little bit more flexibility. In in bouncing back, so to speak, from being widowed. Well, speaking of widowhood and sex, let's talk about
0: remarriage, because you would assume I would kind of assume that reading about how, you know, societies have sort of traditionally viewed widows with a little bit of trepidation because they're not entirely sure. I would assume that there would be a super high remarriage rate. For widows because it's like oh well you know what just get her married again right let's get her back into her proper social role and and for instance in islam widows remarriage is encouraged um but you you don't actually see these kinds of uh even if remarriage is encouraged when you look at the actual statistics it's not so common
1: and we mentioned how in India, you know, only 10% of widows get remarried. In ancient Israel, the ideal widow was someone who was chaste and didn't remarry. So the attitude generally, historically, about widows remarrying has kind of been like, eh, okay, well, if you have to, that's that's good, because then you'll be married. And if you have any sexual activity, it will be confined to marriage. But honestly staying chaste would earn you more respect, particularly in Hebrew and early Christian societies. Because, you know, they said remarriage is better than sleeping around, especially if you're young, because kind of people look at young widows as like, well, we don't want to, you know... Have you sleep around? We should probably get you remarried to someone. Um, but when you, that's sometimes that's only possible for upper class women. If you look at China during the Qing period, which was 1644 to 1912, elite women, widowed before age 30, were honored as exemplary if they remained chaste until 50. And again, like we said before, I mean, sometimes that is only possible if you're part of that elite class, if you have enough money and social standing to be able to not remarry.
0: And the pattern of widowers being far likelier to remarry than widows is not a new phenomenon. If you look, for instance, at 18th century France, 80 percent of widowers in their 20s remarry compared to 60 percent of widows in that age group. Uh, And then if you move up to widowers and widows in their 40s, 52 percent of the men get remarried compared to just 20 percent. Of the women. So it's clear that like the
1: older you get, the wider that gap grows. Yeah, it's the same in Dutch society in the 19th century. You have three times as many widows as widowers. But why? Why was widowerhood such a less permanent situation than widowhood? There are all these theories on age, you know, women of appropriate marrying age, young pretty things were were drying up basically. Uh you have theories about women outliving men, etc., 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 but women in Western Europe really didn't start outliving men until relatively recently. Instead, the authors posit we have these issues of gender norms and ideals, power relations behind people of different ages and sexual division of labor that influence the frequency of remarriage and whether it's even proper.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that all of it relates a lot back to a sexual double standard mm-hmm. wherein, you know, like after it is known that a woman has sex especially back more in in these historic days when we're closer to the era of, you know, women very much as second class citizens and treated as property uh, in marital arrangements, because you have to remember that getting married for love is a much newer phenomenon that wasn't coming about until like the 18th and 19th centuries with the Industrial Revolution. And so, you know, if, if women are being considered property, then, of course, a widow is going to be
1: considered, quote unquote, damaged goods, mm-hmm. as
0: opposed to a widower who he's just another guy.
1: Right. Right. Now, Kristen mentioned as far as property goes, um, she mentioned the guilds in Dutch society that sort of help support widows of various classes. And sometimes looking at those professional groups, especially if you move over to France and England, a lot of times women would end up entering some of those professions in their husbands places. But something interesting happens with gender identity. Um, women who were reclassified as basically honorary men when they took over for their husbands in their various professions or businesses or whatever, were essentially flouting their female identity. And so you could argue that maybe that even makes them less remarriageable mm-hmm. in a way. And in addition to perhaps
0: taking over their husband's jobs in some cases, you and this is something that you'd still see today uh, in 18th century France. It was again very common for widows and spinsters—oh, that word—to be living together in order to share chores, the cost of housing, and also provide some f- sort of family unit for each other. There, mm-hmm. there, these. It was very uncommon for women to be living on their own away from. A father or
1: a, a brother who had some financial means or a husband. Right. And so that marginalizes them if it's a bunch of women folk living together. A oh, bunch of crazy cat <laughs> ladies, right? <laughs> well, it also marginalized them too. And this is, this is pretty obvious, I would think. When a lot of women are faced with, okay, I have no man to care for me or provide for me, but I have to put food in my kids' mouths. A lot of them would choose, basically turn to professions that marginalize them themselves whether that's prostitution or theft because um in 18th century France and Britain you have a lot of widows in the judicial record for prostitution and theft and why is that they kind of have to do whatever they can to feed their families. So the question
0: then is clearly the history of widows is one of marginalization mm-hmm. unless you're an upper class woman. But even if you're an upper class woman there's still all these social rules for how long you have to be in mourning, whether or not, you know, you, you have to be perceived as chaste or whether you can remarry. It, it's really not up to you mm-hmm. what happens with your life. So the question is, that was what life was like for widows then. And we've talked some about how you still see roots of those traditions still in developing nations. But what about today in the West more? what 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 is it like for widows? And we'll talk more, too about widowers when we come right back from a quick break.
1: So one thing that was never discussed in ancient Assyria as far as widows go was something called the widowhood effect. This gets a lot of attention now um, from psychologists, from doctors who have noticed that spouses who are left behind face a huge number of both mental and and physical, a lot of emotional too, uh, problems after their spouse dies. It's, it's more than just the depression that you would expect when your spouse passes away. There's a lot of uh, different effects that you can face. And Harvard did a study in November 2013. Um, which looked at data from a University of Michigan health and retirement study following more than 12,000 people over the age of 50 for 10 years, kind of looking at their relationships as they aged and what happened after a spouse dies. And they found for this widowhood effect, quote unquote widowhood effect, that when a spouse died, the surviving spouse faced a higher risk of dying over the next few months as well. That's pretty scary, actually. Um, They found that widows and widowers both were more likely to die than people whose spouses were still living on average. That effect was strongest during the first couple of months after a spouse's death, during which time they had a 66 percent increased chance of dying. And the authors point out, okay, well, this could be a grief related thing or it could actually be a physical thing that when you've been caring for a sick and dying spouse, you just haven't taking care of yourself, and after they pass, maybe you just don't even want to.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's this whole idea of whether you can die from a broken heart, and this research suggests that in a way, you kind of can. Uh, There was a study published in the journal Demography in 2009 looking at that issue of uh, perhaps the spouses that have been left behind who haven't been taking care of themselves so much because if they've been really caring and also grieving... For the loss, sometimes gradual, sometimes more acute, of a spouse, they have probably been looking or overlooking, excuse me, their own health care needs. And this is a more pertinent issue, too, they found for widowers. So they found that men who have lost a spouse suffer more from a decline in their quality of informal care, kind of taking care of themselves on the day-to-day, also coordinating between Formal and informal care. So making sure they get to their routine doctor's visits and also make sure that they're brushing their teeth two times a day or three times a day after a particularly garlicky lunch. Um, and also uh, they suffer from a decline in advocating and communicating in medical settings. And this kind of points to, I mean, this is also a very heteronormative uh, finding because it's looking at male-female relationships, obviously. But they think that this really illustrates women's centrality in the, what's termed the household production of health. It's often the wife looking after mm-hmm. the dad. This makes me think of, Caroline, how my parents, who have been married decades, my mother still makes my father's sandwiches. <laughs> like, I don't know what he would do. If she, honestly, if, if she dies before
1: my father, I don't know what he would do. yeah. When my grandmother died, my grandfather didn't know how to work the oven or the microwave, anything. He was at a loss. Um, Another thing that, you know, scholars who study these basically divisions of, well, household labor, but also household roles, gender roles, uh, one thing that they point to a lot of times is that the wife typically heads up the social calendar. It's the woman who tends to reach out and have more social connections, dragging, as in my parents' case, dragging the begrudging man along to the block party with her. But it tends to be, um, and not that this applies to everyone, but then it tends to be the man who makes more money, controls more of the finances. So woman Cruise director, man, head of finances. So when they were looking at couples uh, who have this particular divide of labor, they found that men tend to experience widowhood or widowerhood, really, as a more emotionally distressing event than women. And this is a, a study from the Journal of Health and Social Behavior. But they make sure to stress that men and women experience both marriage and widowhood differently. Imagine that. And that includes the pros and cons of both. So basically what they're saying is that when a man dies, leaving his wife behind, her stress comes from the financial strain. But when a woman leaves a man behind... His stress comes from that lack of a social network. Maybe he doesn't have as many people coming to visit as she would, that kind of thing. Maybe he's not good if he's not good at reaching out to go to the doctor. Maybe he's not as good as reaching out to friends for support.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into this more about how the existence of a social support network prior to losing a spouse really predicts how well they will, uh, you know, a widow or a widower will transition perhaps into... Another relationship, another romantic relationship in their life. And speaking of widowers and romantic or perhaps just purely sexual relationships, we would like to note that according to a study published in 2009 in the American Journal of Public Health, Widowhood in older men, but not women, is correlated to an increased risk for STIs. And this finding was particularly pronounced after the introduction of the first oral erectile dysfunction drug. So grandpa's out there taking Viagra. Don't forget that STIs still exist at the retirement home. Right. Grandpa,
1: grandpa's getting (laughs) frisky. Now that we have poisoned your brain with images of people getting STIs in nursing homes, we should talk about dating and remarriage for for widows and widowers.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is there is a a major gender imbalance, particularly if you are over 65. According to census data from 2003, women over 65 outnumber men roughly one and a half to one. And by 85 that has grown to women outnumbering men four to one. Um, So the, the census also estimates that each year out of every 1000 widowed men and women 65 and older, only three women, but 17 men remarry. So still remarriage at that age isn't super high, but still a lot more common for widowers to marry. So mm-hmm. so what's going on here? What what? What's the deal with widowers' interest in dating and remarriage compared to widows?
1: Well, as Deborah Carr from Rutgers University points out, talking about these statistics, the numbers of people who are getting remarried don't necessarily indicate the number of people who are interested in it or interested in romance in general. She points out that men's widowed men's interest in dating and remarriage really depends on the amount of social support they receive from friends. So six months after they've lost their spouse, men are significantly more likely to want to remarry, but only those men with lower average levels of social support from friends want to remarry. So what does that mean? And that ties back into the whole thing of women being the social directors of having all of those social connections so that if her husband dies, she's more okay. She still has a lot more people around her than he does. And so perhaps men, widowers, not wanting to be alone are more likely to be like, oh, I want to get remarried. I don't want to be alone.
0: Yeah, and I think it has to do with probably familiarity as well. If you've been married to someone for 40 plus years and that person dies, like that's all you know Mm -hmm. is that structure of coming home to or just staying home all day with this other person, that's how you socialize. That's that's who you interact with. You're not probably by the time you're like 85, you might not be going out. You might your cruise director, your cruise uh, lineup might not be as bumping as it used to be. Um, so so to me, it makes it makes so much sense, especially yeah. looking.
1: Looking at my my parents who are getting older. Hmm. Yeah, Carr writes that it's that emotional support that tends to even out the numbers. Widowers and widows who have similar levels of emotional closeness with their friends really don't differ in their desire to get into a relationship after their spouse dies. But what about younger widows? Because we mentioned at the top of the podcast that
0: this topic was requested from A younger widow, um, there are, I mean, going back to those statistics we were talking about too, in terms of widows during wartime in the United States, there have been now over 6,700 casualties from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so clearly there are, there are widows stateside and there are younger widows who are dealing with this as well. And and there was also the statistic you said, Caroline, of uh, 56,000 widows under 35 in the United States in 2009 alone. But according to a study that came out in the Annals of Clinical Psychiatry, there's still some, uh, appears to be some conflict, not surprisingly, with remarriage. So it found that women express more negative feelings about forming new romantic relationships. We tend to be a little more hesitant no matter our age. But speaking of age, the younger we are as women, the likelier we are to remarry. However, for men, the greatest predictors of them remarrying if they are widowers is a higher monthly income and a level of education. So it's kind of interesting to see how it's money for men, age for women.
1: Yeah, yeah. I and that is something I think that goes back all the way to ancient Assyria. Oh, yes. Um and consistent with other studies, that same clinical psychiatry study that Kristen just cited Looking at those first two years of widowhood, that first early window, found that by 25 months after the spouse's death, 61 percent of men and 19 percent of women were either remarried or involved in a new romance. And so there's that same there's that same divide again. Yeah. And one story that I
0: read before we came into the podcast studio uh, more recently, uh, this was reported on in the BBC about how there are some proposed legislative changes in the U.K., that would allow widows, like military widows, to remarry and continue receiving their deceased husband's pensions. Because there have been cases where women who have been you know, receiving these pensions from the government for their husband's deaths have not been able to afford to remarry because they would take such a financial hit mm-hmm. losing that pension. And these women aren't money grubbers. Mm-hmm. They simply want to start this new chapter of their life. But because for so long, you know, w- widows tend to face such a huge financial burden. And at least in this case, uh, the, the social support has not really been there. It's kind of been like, we'll help you as long as you don't remarry, which doesn't seem like a uh, much of a fair deal.
1: That seems like everything we just talked about. Yeah. For the past couple of centuries. Well, and on top of the, the lack of
0: more like federal support, perhaps government support for, for widows, Just think about the day to day social support Mm -hmm. in terms of, I'm sure for, even though there aren't discrete rules in American culture to the same extent as you might see in, uh, you know, developing nations where you have these distinct cleansing rituals that you have to go through. I think there's still this question of, well, how long do I need to? be in mourning? How long, you know, when can I start to date? How soon is too soon? And what are people going to think if I do want to start dating again? I mean, Mm -hmm. will they think that I'm just, are people going to think that I just don't care anymore about my deceased spouse? What?
1: I'm sure that they're caught in limbo sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be rough because someone's going to judge you almost at every step of the way, I would think, as far as if you're dating too early. Maybe maybe your husband's family thinks you're dating too early or maybe your friends don't think you're dating early enough. Maybe they think you need to get back out there and just stop talking about it, stop thinking about it, get over it. But mm-hmm. you know, it's it's having not been in those shoes. It's it's I don't, you know, how can you tell somebody to get over it? Yeah. Prolific writer Carol Brady Fleet who wrote the book Widows Wear Stilettos, a practical and emotional guide for the young widow, basically says, "You know, you're not a weirdo if you want to to date or remarry eventually and for all of those people giving you different types of advice on how you should live your life and get over it or not get over it she says to to really kind of take them into account accept the advice and the words of wisdom and kind of find your own appropriate path she she warns you that your friend's are going to move on before you do. That doesn't mean you should hold on to the people who are jerks and don't support you. You know, maybe you need to reevaluate some of your friendships after you go through this life experience. But, you know, she she warns readers that, you know, it's it's a hard road and it's kind of you're kind of on it by yourself. Well, and what stood out to me,
0: as opposed to a lot of the topics that we talk about on the podcast, it's. Usually, uh, full of articles and advice on, you know, best practices, mm-hmm. like what to do. There's been a lot of research on it, but it's not so much in this case. There's lots of information on how widows have it really hard and how there are a lot of them and we just don't know what to do. And, and it seems like from there, it's just people shrugging their shoulders yeah. and saying, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's this massive gap of, I mean, cause you can, Really, never prepare for it fully, mm-hmm. because who really wants to think about that? I mean, unless you are dealing with a spouse who has some kind of long-term illness, there's a little bit more preparation for that. But it's not like when you get married, you're like, well, uh, let's start planning ahead for when you die, because that will happen. Um So I just, I don't know, I just feel like there's there needs to be more resources, more conversation, mm-hmm. more... Uh, more allowance for widows and widowers to take care of themselves in whatever way that yeah. is appropriate
1: for their individual situations. There's a lot of stuff out there, relatively speaking, about the financial aspect, because I think it's such a common thing for women to run into the issue of like, oh, no. Like, my husband was the one who either made more money or he controlled the finances or he wrote the checks, and suddenly I'm left with no safety net. So yeah. I think there is a lot of stuff among, like, financial people on how to help widows or financial people giving advice to women who have lost a spouse. Um, but there is sort of a big gap, you're right, in, in the more, like, the emotional side of things. Well, maybe it's time to ask our
0: listeners what needs to be done, because... I'm, I'm sure that there are some widows and widowers listening or, you know, people who have seen their parents go through mm-hmm. the loss of a spouse. Um, how, how do we process this? How do we, how can we be better for people in our families, in our communities, uh, in, in the world at large who deal with the lo- loss of a spouse? Mm-hmm. Let us know. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send us your letters. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or send us a Facebook message as well. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. So we've got a couple of letters here from our episode on girls and ADHD. This one is from Amanda, subject line ADHD. Thank you. Two exclamation points. She writes, Thank you so much for your episode on women and girls and ADHD. I received my ADHD diagnosis at age six and spent much of my elementary school years on Ritalin. I stopped medicating in middle school and am now an adult and have learned to manage it, but I still live with ADHD every day. I have what I like to call the spacey kind. It's very difficult for me to maintain focus. For instance, and this happens every single day, A colleague will approach me at my cubicle to discuss an issue, but another conversation will be happening a few cubes over, and I can't help but have one ear in each conversation. It's simply impossible for me to listen to only the person talking to me, and it makes it hard when they walk away, and I have no idea what they said. Anyway, it's great to hear attention is being drawn to women and ADHD because it is so often identified with hyperactive men and boys. So thank you so much. I am very grateful.
1: Well, thank you, Amanda. So I have a letter here from Ashley, who says, As a female with ADHD, it was very hard for me to get an actual diagnosis so that I could get help in school. I have several teachers who just write it off as I am, you mentioned, a little bit dreamy or an airhead, because I don't show any signs of hyperactivity. I do, however, understand the imposter syndrome feeling, as I make A's and B's in school, but I have to work so hard for them that I spend upwards of 15 hours a week studying and doing homework, while little Susie classmate makes A's and B's without making hardly any effort. Which makes me kind of angry, actually, because of the competitive and perfectionist traits that I have. Also, because of this, I have had to take an antidepressant ADHD pill mix. This has absolutely been a wonder drug for me, and when reading the forums, when I was looking at what kind of pills I was going to have to take, I discovered there are so many people like me who have to take an antidepressant and ADHD pill, which for me is Welbutrin. This made me feel a lot better about it. Again, thank you for covering this topic on your podcast. I hope many girls and women will feel better that they are not alone, as it is a terrible feeling that everyone seems to, quote, have it together, and you don't. Oh, and she says, P.S., I have also been given the little key ring with the remote in case you lose your keys. I lost the remote, too. Don't feel bad. So thank you, Ashley. And
0: thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff@discovery.com is where you can send us your letters. And for links to all of our social media, every single one of our podcasts, videos, and blogs, there's one place to go, and it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. That's audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom.